Hello, and welcome to the Charter Cities podcast. I'm your host, Mark Lutter, the founder and executive director of the Charter Cities Institute. On the Charter Cities podcast, we illuminate the various aspects of building a charter city, from governance to urban planning, politics to finance. We hope listeners to the Charter Cities podcast will come away with a deep understanding of charter cities, as well as the steps necessary to build them. You can subscribe and learn more about charter cities at chartercitiesinstitute.org. Follow us on social media, cci.city on Twitter, and Charter Cities Institute on Facebook. Thank you for listening. My guest today is Samuel Burio. He founded Bismarck Analysis, a consulting firm that investigates the political and institutional landscape of society. He is also a research fellow at the Long Now Foundation and a senior research fellow in political science at the Foresight Institute. Thanks for coming on the show, Samo. Uh, it's good to be here with you. Great. So to start, I think you're probably best known for your great founder theory. Can you describe what that is and why that might this interest our listeners? Yes. Uh, great founder theory is an attempt at making a theory of history. That is a theory that explains, say, the macro scale, broad patterns of what drives historical development. There are many very good answers to this question. Some people like Jared Diamond focus on geographic determinism. Other popular popular thinkers or popularizers like Yuval Harari might try to take an information lens on this, on these developments. These lenses always, you know, they carry some truth, right? But they're always simplifications and they're always sort of these claims as to which mechanisms of historical change take precedence over others. Now, great founder theory to summarize it, but also differentiate it from what's been called great man history. That is the idea that exceptional individuals shape great events. The distinction I would make between great man history and great founder theory is that this is a theory focusing on institutions and institutional development. So all of the arguments you might see in, you know, the history of economics or political science, you know, these debates about the relevance of 18th century checks and balances and political development, the emergence of free trade or mercantilism, you know, the development of organized religions. All of these arguments are ones that I deploy, that I use, that, you know, can be used to model the historical world. The one key distinction here is the idea that so much of our social world, so much of these social technologies originates with individuals after all. So instead of just a general has won a great battle and this battle determines the course of history. It's more along the lines of a great military reformer has set up an army that couldn't help but win, even if the generals were sort of bad. Or perhaps, you know, the industrial development of a country was notably accelerated. So then their generals tend to win the battles eventually, even if at first they're bad. And this is a something we can ground historically, right? You could make an argument that say in the American Civil War, one side had a strong industrial advantage, and the other side started with good generals. And we know how that went. Sure. But at least in the American Civil War, uh, the industrial power obviously mattered. But you could go for the natural endowment kind of explanation where the South had natural endowments of basically high productivity agriculture that was also relatively easy to measure 
in terms of surplus that allowed for it to be much more conducive to slavery, while the North had types of agriculture that were much less conducive to slavery. And then also the different settlement patterns of the South, where the South tended to be the English kind of aristocracy, the second sons, as well as kind of Scottish Highlanders in Appalachia, where the North was more the Puritans and the Quakers, which were a little bit more kind of, I don't know, culturally suited to industrialization. So that culture combined with those those natural endowments led to those different, I guess, outcomes. I mean, the natural endowments argument is a very strong one, right? There's a reason why, say, something like geographical determinism is worth taking very seriously. However, when it comes to geography, we sometimes take human population distributions as a given. So if we dig a little bit into the question of culture where, you know, Mark, where does Puritan culture come from? It's not actually just a random set of folkways. It's actually the result of an idealistic and at times strange, one could even say possibly deranged attempt to alter human nature and re-engineer social arrangements. There's an interesting way when you start reading about the Puritan colonies, they have many things that are very admirable. But then in addition to their well-known zealotry, you have this odd notion of uh, basically kind of a, a total surveillance society. The idea is that, you know, you are your brother's keeper and that everyone should be on the lookout for a vice spreading through society. The political organization is centered on the religious institutions in a way that's much stronger than, say, what you would see in the mainline Anglican church and so on and so on. So there I would say that, okay, yeah. Puritan culture real, cavalier culture is real, but both of these have definitive origins, right? And some of these origins can be traced to social reforms. The kingdom of the Franks is organized very differently than Roman Gaul and has very different emphasis and has very different military capacities, even if, say, technologically, they weren't that distinct and geographically, it's the same North European plain. So how do you think about, like Hayek, for example, is well known for, well, actually he popularized the saying, uh, Adam Ferguson, I think, originated it, the result of human action, but not human design. And this is used to refer to institutions. So for example, if we look at the UK, at least the kind of in this, I don't know what to call it, like Austrian emergent history of thought, it tends to place common law as there was nobody who came along and said, all right, this is what common law is. Obviously, you did have great jurists who helped great develop frameworks and simplify things and then were revered for that. But it was this long evolutionary kind of process of people on the ground realizing, okay, we have problems and then developing this body of law to solve those problems and eventually getting codified over time that happened to then be very useful once the Industrial Revolution and modernity started to occur. So, I mean, how, how does that, I guess, fit into to great founder theory? Incremental cultural developments very much are a real force. I use the framework of traditions of knowledge, where I tend to operationalize, you know, what is sort of the active component of this cultural tradition? What is the component that carries with it new mechanisms, new ways of doing and what's like, in a way, not ephemeral, but maybe like just flavoring stuff that doesn't really change the way people coordinate or the way material production is done. The distinctions I make is between live traditions and dead traditions, where living traditions carry within them the possibility of regenerating or extending the core principles behind them. And meanwhile, dead traditions are just imitation of the forms and not what originated the forms. So having said this, I still believe that, you know, most of the big bodies of, of cultural inheritance have their origin 
with a few concrete individuals setting up the framework. Now, once you set up the framework, it can be developed in very interesting directions. It can be capped. It can be evolved. It can evolve through a thousand small steps or through five large reforms. But there is definitely a strong founding moment. As a concrete example of this, perhaps controversially, you know, institutions can, of course, not just be founded, but refounded. But let me take, for example, the decisions of the Emperor Constantine with regard to Christian church politics in the third century AD. Isn't it quite obvious that were different decisions made, different political coalitions, the theology of both the Catholic and Orthodox churches might be quite different, or that the political influence of the later medieval church might have been quite different, or that, you know, maybe it wouldn't have even become the state religion of the Roman Empire. Maybe it would have been a failed attempt at producing a new state religion. And, you know, we'd all be uh, some variant of Zoroastrian or something today. So I do feel that, you know, Christianity obviously massively changed in the 1700 years since Constantine organized an aspect of it. But uh, I think that that pivotal role did define a lot of further development. So what's then, if we take a great founder theory, what then are the implications that would differ from other major theories if we kind of examine what the current role of the world is today? Yeah, I think one of the key differences would be that there would be a stronger focus on the introduction of various types of social reforms and economic reforms. There are some other theories that propose such focuses. You know, most famously, Marxism perhaps argued that, you know, the modes of production changing through history, that we can like, you know, determine most of history almost scientifically by following these sort of immutable set of changes. Now, Marxism, of course, always had difficulty for modeling things that were not Europe, right? It had difficulty modeling Asian economies. In fact, even today, modern economists who are very much not Marxists still have difficulty explaining the so-called great divergence between, say, Europe and East Asia, and honestly, even Europe and the Middle East and Europe and India. There were many points in the last thousand years where each of these regions had higher wealth, uh, even higher wealth per capita than Europe, certainly more technologically developed, certainly more cultured along most standard routes. Yet the Industrial Revolution did start in Europe and it did reshape the world. So the difference might then be the special focus on what sort of are these levers of coordination and social change that we see individuals use through history? So stronger focus on, say, the tactics and the practicalities of being a prophet that convinces a society to, uh, you know, adopt your religion or the difficulties of reforming, say, a tribal society into a feudal society or a feudal society into a bureaucratic society, right? These decisions, I think, and not just these decisions, these attempts they can't ever fully design the final structure. I'm not proposing there are out there in our history full-on architects of civilization. What I am proposing is that they are very important builders of civilization, right? People that produce cornerstones. You know, you start building a tower, and by the end of it, the tower might be quite different. A good example of this is the Tower of Galata in Istanbul, right? It starts its life. I recently visited it. It starts its life as basically a Roman lighthouse ends up being a prison tower, an astronomical observatory, a fort for Jesuits to hold up into, and so on. Just all sorts of different uses for this tower. Yet it definitely has a determinate origin in that original 
Roman lighthouse. Cool. And you mentioned, I guess, the kind of modes of production. One other, I guess, sometimes interesting thought I have to explain history is thinking about the impact of different offensive and defensive technologies on uh, history. So you can imagine sometimes there is an advantage to offensive weaponry. This might be something like the Mongol or generally steppe warriors where the Mongols had right horses and then they had bows that they could shoot very quickly from. And with their horses, they were basically able to decimate armies, create the world's largest contiguous land empire. Also, at some points in history, they're arguably, I don't know, defensive technologies that end up dominating. If you think about, I guess, castles in the Middle Ages, they were a defensive technology that until cannons was pretty much a trump card. So how do then, like one, kind of military technologies, but then two, this could also be applied to technology more broadly in terms of, I don't know, right? I mean, you mentioned industrial capacity previously. How do those interrelate into your great founder theory? Yes, military technologies are an important driver of history. Here, I would definitely recommend a book by the American historian Carol Quigley uh, titled Weapon Systems and Political Stability. It's one of the better and deeper treatises on this topic. You know, as, as so often, unfortunately, happens with the works of great historians, the book, you know, the author dies before he manages to write the book describing modern weapons, right? You, you often have these incompleted book series because it just takes for so long to examine the evidence, let alone to synthesize it with a with any type of generative theory. Now, with weapon systems in particular, I think we constantly have a severe disconnect between what is materially possible in warfare and what is actualized. This warfare is perhaps well illustrated by the massive gap between technology on the one hand and tactics, army organization, and strategy on the other. Arguably, you know, trench warfare, of course, is somewhat the product of material technology, of cannon being at a particular stage of development, of the machine gun, of barbed wire being affordable and deployable, of uh, logistic supply lines enabled by trains and so on, of national mobilization efforts partially organized through novel communication technologies like the telegraph and so on. Certainly, profound role. However, every time a new material possibility is introduced, there's a whole long and in the case of warfare, bloody learning process. Anyone who is capable of skipping some steps in this learning process can really shape the winners and losers of this technological transition. So I would say there's not just material technology, there is social technology. Now, to give a, a, an example, a hundred years earlier, before the First World War, Napoleon and his use of cannon, very important innovation, that technical capability was already there. And in some ways, you know, there were elements of it that were already introduced earlier, but he sort of brought it to an art, to a completion of how they fit into that battlefield. And this gave France a significant advantage, even though France was not the most technologically advanced country in Europe at the time. Already at the time, the British were quite ahead in a whole number of domains. And when it came to, say, sheer army discipline or something like this, you know, the Prussians were already the Prussians, let alone Again, the geographic determinism, you know, perhaps even Napoleon couldn't quite overcome the vastness of Russia as one stereotype, but the more accurate one is I think even Napoleon couldn't prevent a whole continent from trading with his key enemy, the British. I think that's, that's the more important one, almost the more important geographic barrier. Uh, you can always just sort of ignore Russia and deter it. You don't actually have to take it over, but it's much, much harder to try to control 
the trade regimes of unwilling allies. Still, to refocus why I explore this anecdote of Napoleon, why one can explore, say, how World War One era technology might have been, in fact, better served by the tactics we saw in World War Two, right? You know, this was the era where the armored vehicle was introduced, where the airplane was introduced, all of that. Nothing prevented you from doing some early version of mobile warfare with the technology of 1915. Just, you know, the way the army is supposed to be organized, the way an offensive is supposed to work, all of these things were just not known. And they required a pairing advance, not just, it required an advance of social technology to catch up with material technology. So I think in great founder theory, the view would be that social and material technology build on each other. So not only do you need social technology to catch up to material technology, if you have a massive failure of social technology, such as say with the Bronze Age collapse or something like this, you're going to see a failure of material technology too. And technology can in fact be lost or, uh, you know, mostly falls out of disuse. What is the most or who is the most underrated great founder in history? That's a very good question. I mean, underrated, overrated. There are people who are appropriately rated. I actually think I'll be a little bit contrarian. I think Confucius is quite a bit more important than people think he is. You know, everyone says he's important because, you know, he has these, you know, principles to live by, this ethic, and kind of, you know, we in the Western world, we struggle to find an equivalent to Jesus or Muhammad in Eastern civilizations. We kind of arbitrarily pick Confucius, even though arguably, you know, the Taoist tradition has better mystics or perhaps more influential. But I think the key aspect of his reform program is a particular way of educating bureaucrats and a particular way bureaucrats should seize power and a set of justifications for them to exercise power. So I think Confucius is, you know, in a way overrated for normal reasons and underrated as a political revolutionary. If we think of Confucius in the same breath as we say, think of Lenin, I think that might be a more accurate description of his contribution. Now, when it comes to um, the Western world, its history is a little bit, it's filled with these figures that we know and we admire. But I think I would say that I think Ptolemy, the first Ptolemy, King Ptolemy of Egypt is greatly underrated. We credit the Library of Alexandria to the philosophers, not to the royal family that set it up. And we credit, say, the many inventions of the Greek and Roman era. We perhaps even underrate those inventions, right? We forget that the Renaissance is an following the inspiration of them. But we sort of just think that they naturally emerged, right? We don't think of this set of uh, successor states to Alexander the Great's empire and how they relate to siege warfare, irrigation, machinery, and knowledge in a completely different way than previous states in antiquity. Like I could say that, you know, Ptolemy state was perhaps the first real state with an R&D program, like a serious one. When Ptolemy banned the export of papyrus to the kingdom of Pergamon, he wasn't being a jealous book collector. No matter how jealous a book collector you are, you don't need millions of scrolls. What he was doing was banning the export of a strategic material to a rival state. It's more comparable to today, you know, say banning Huawei from developing your information infrastructure than it is to the jealousy of a overly keen book collector. Cool. And if you're looking for a great founder to build a city, what characteristics would you look for in them? And then I guess what great founders in history would be good at building cities and which ones would not? 
I honestly think that cities are these remarkable organisms that almost an edge case to my theories, right? All the most important cities we can name usually have more of a mythical founder or an obscure founder than an easily defined one. Now, obviously, the city of Istanbul with the Emperor Constantine or the city of St. Petersburg, you know, these are counterexamples. But, you know, a city like Rome has mostly a mythical founder. Still, with that caveat that it can be difficult to say exactly, I think if you truly wanted to see a a city that is shapes global history, and I think it's fair to say many cities really do shape global history. Cities are these centers of intellectual production and decision-making and economic production, of course, is an easy one. But yeah, changing the future history of the world by building a new city is a pretty good bet, often much easier than creating a new country. In a great founder of a city, I would seek for something like a rootedness in a particular place, a sort of dodged determination to make this particular plot of land the center of the world. And that's honestly completely delusional when you're looking at an empty plot of land. And it's, of course, completely delusional until it's true. He's a bit of a stereotype. I'm sure he's been discussed too much, but there's a way in which Lee Kuan Yew has that characteristic fairly straightforwardly. There's also a way in which uh, other city founders have had this characteristic. The second one is a awareness of different cultures and how they coexist. The person has to understand more than just one culture. Even if we're talking about a city that's mostly populated from a single country, be it, you know, Germany, the United States, China, presumably everyone's coming in with the same language or about the same language, even in those homogenous contexts, the differences between city life, right, multi-generational city dwellers versus the people who have recently been pulled from the countryside and hinterland are absolutely massive, right? A lot of what we see in modern China and modern Chinese internal politics is a conflict between the people who've lived in cities since 1980 and the people who lived in the cities long before all of these arrivals from the Western provinces and the countryside poured in. So even in a context like China that's seemingly homogenous, you in fact need someone that is literate emotionally, socially, and intellectually, ideally also just can speak multiple languages. He has to be literate in all of these senses in several different cultures and has to bridge them. A city is always a multicultural project, even if these different cultures are just different subcultures. And then another important one is, I think, coalition building. And the ability to find and retain long-term collaborators. If I don't see a city founder that hasn't had, you know, 10 really solid long-term collaborators who've been through some conflict, I worry that perhaps he's going to lose control of City Hall much too early or will not be able to navigate some of the economic challenges that are inherent in creating a city in the first place right, might not be able to organize something of that type. And then one more thing, I think the founder of a city has to, to some extent, embody something that becomes a self-identity or a virtue of a city. Almost every city sort of has this type of stereotype of what the typical inhabitant is like. Let's talk, say, New York culture or San Francisco culture or Vienna culture or something like this. The person has to have one sort of standout characteristic 
that most of the residents of a city say, oh, he's a true New Yorker, right? They have to have that characteristic. If the person doesn't, they'll be vaguely resented by people. Now, the fun part is if you're building a new city, maybe you can define the virtues of a city so that one of your virtues is also the virtue of a city. So you can stack the deck in your favor, but you have to know to do that, right? So there's a, there's a particular paternalistic element of PR at play there, right? Cool. So let's move on. You recently published an essay about, I'm going to butcher this pronunciation, Gobleki Tepe, which is this, uh, I guess, Turkish archaeological site that is somewhat unique in that it predates agriculture, where the common human story is, right, people develop agriculture in river valleys, typically grain, and that provided a surplus that was relatively easy to identify and to extract, where, for example, with tubers, they're underground, so they're difficult to extract. But with grain, because it's quite easy to extract, that surplus then provided the foundation for states, which then created civilization, writing, social structure, buildings, all of these good things, along with all the terrible things that are also associated with early modern states or early states in terms of like slavery, in terms of uh, hierarchy, in terms of a lot of this brutalism. But your argument suggests that this narrative is, in fact, incorrect. And we are typically thinking of civilization making in a different manner. Is that a fair summary? If not, what's wrong with it? If so, uh, can you go a little bit more into, I guess, what Gobleki Tepe is and how that relates to this hypothesis? Yeah, Gobekli Tepe is unique because it is, as you said, a site in southeastern Turkey that was only dug up in 1995. So this is quite recent and it was still being actively excavated until I think 2016, something like this. The site consists of these several large concentric stone circles, each of them made up of these tall pillars each of the pillars weighing from about 10 to 20 tons. You have everything from carvings of animals to like some debatable depictions of people. And it's really just should not be there. It is about a thousand years older than the consensus origin of agriculture. Yet when archaeologists produced estimates for the human labor needed to assemble these large and honestly pretty impressive structures, they came to the number of 500 laborers. Well, these laborers indeed had to be organized and they had to be fed. Now, we could debate how they were fed. Perhaps the climatological models are wrong, though the best climatological models we have suggest that the area was just as dry then as it is today. So this is at the very edge of the Fertile Crescent up in these hilly mountainous terrain, right? These are like, this is a harsh landscape. It's a landscape where some farming happens, but it happens because of irrigation. And it's, yes, pretty much growing grain today. So how exactly were these people fed back then? You could perhaps think that the wildlife was much more abundant and plentiful. While there is evidence for this in uh, places like the Siberian steppe, there's no evidence of it in the Gobekli Tepe site. There's no evidence that these dry hills had that much game. So it really starts to be an interesting puzzle, an interesting question as to how these people were fed. And it's debatable. However, I think the circumstantial evidence is strong that we simply found the temple first and possibly there was some agriculture beforehand. However, even if that's all incorrect, we still have the feat of organizing 500 people, right? This is like a significant achievement. This temple is built on top of a hill. This hill is visible from the entire surrounding landscape. It was something of a landmark. It would have been something that would have been well known to people hundreds of miles away. So 
I already said temple. It's an interesting question whenever we find something and we don't know what it's for. You know, it's very easy to say, oh, it's for ceremonial purposes. It's assumed to be a temple. In fact, the discoverer of the site, Klaus Schmidt, thought it was a temple. And he made the argument that possibly organized religion came first. And then the needs of organized religion led to this process of domestication of grain, the introduction of large-scale irrigation, and yes, also things like the collection of taxes and eventually uh, these different labor arrangements. And so if that does, assume that is true, how does this change our view of history? How does this affect how we think about, I guess, human civilization organizing? I think one of the key big things that the site does demonstrate is that complex society, so complex human society, in all of those senses, in the sense of large-scale community life, in the sense of large-scale organized labor, in the sense of even long-distance trade, right? Because we see more and more evidence from other sites of basically long-distance trade in the Neolithic and the Mesolithic uh, the Paleolithic stuff is more debatable. As always, society ha- is just been around for much longer than previously assumed. And complex human social behavior and coordination is much older as well. We really probably did not spend most of our evolutionary history as 10 people hiding in a cave. Even if 10 people were living in a cave, these people probably attended festivals where they would see a few hundred people or they would join war bands of 50 people or 100 people. We have areas where we've excavated full-on battles where, you know, you have 50 people killed by stone axe with uh, clear evidence of wounds on their bodies, and these are all adult men, and some of them are even carrying weaponry. What is this if not the remnants of a battle site? Now, you have stuff like this found in Europe. You have stuff like this found in uh, Asia. Really, the full spectrum of human social behavior might have in fact been there, even this large-scale coordination, long before we usually assume it was. And perhaps the material tools that we build, such as, you know, boats for trading, roads, so armies can march back and forth, irrigation, so that we can feed larger labor forces, aqueducts, so we can bring water to people in the cities far away from any natural source of water. These are perhaps material technologies that assist are sort of already desired or already shown, revealed preference, this sort of demonstrated pattern of social behavior. So possibly this puts human social behavior in the center and technology as assisting this sort of large-scale macro human social behavior. And so if this is true, are we going to discover more Gobleki Tepes What is the likelihood that we will? What should we look for in terms of where to potentially find them? And is a, I guess, a radical rethinking of the origins of human civilization, archaeology, likely in the next 20 years? I basically uh, am happy to make this bet with any qualified challenger. As I said at the end of my article, this was the uh, Lady Magazine article, Why Civilization is Much Older Than We Think. I think we will find many new sites that force us to revise step after step, our current preconceptions. One example of this is the Ohalo site in Israel, which is near the Lake of Galilee, where there is evidence of small-scale cultivation of grains over 20,000 years ago. So that site, to me, suggests that small-scale agriculture 
has been a part of our behavioral packet, like sort of modern Homo sapiens behavioral set as deeply as hunting and gathering or say fishing. And I think that, yes, it's very natural that we will find such sites. I do have to caution, however, archaeology is not that hypothesis a driven science. It's not the case that people first think, ah, okay, we need to find, we think humanity is a, has this type of characteristics. So we're going to go dig in all of the sites that fit that description. It's very random. There are places where construction happens and then you run across some new ruins and then maybe the ruins are explored by archaeologists. Maybe they're not. Archaeologists have a limited budget. They have some time to work it through. Honestly, you might have a situation where there is a revolutionary site that was already found but has not been fully explored or was misdated. Gobekli Tepe itself is an example of this because in the 1960s, it was actually discovered for the first time by a team from the University of Chicago and the University of Istanbul. They found all of these, you know, marvelous Neolithic tools. And they thought to themselves, well, you know, those structures, these remnants of these structures, that's probably a medieval Byzantine cemetery that was built over this Neolithic site and got all the tools mixed up. So they saw what they expected to see. It took Klaus Schmidt in 1994, 1995, revisiting a site that he actually found in the archives. He was searching for sites that deserved a second look. And he was struck by this. And he was like, well, look, this is obviously ancient construction. Our theories did not predict construction at this scale. So, so much for the theories, so much worse for the theories. We should adopt new theories and try to find new explanations. So I'd be very bullish on re-examining sites particularly trying to date more of them and trying to sort of extend our imagination of how old some of these sites might be. So you mentioned that archaeology is not a hypothesis-driven science. This is kind of something that I think about and we sometimes discuss in the office is how a lot of, I think, professions have become a little bit, I guess, sclerotic and inward-looking. And archaeology is, I guess, one potential example. I don't know enough about archaeology to have a particularly strong opinion on that, but it fits with my priors. I'm an economist, and I find the economist profession a little bit sclerotic and inward-looking. If you look, most of the interesting debate is happening on Twitter, but in terms of academic journals, what they are meaningfully contributing to our understanding of economics, it's very low if you define economics uh, kind of in this broad uh, Smithian sense. So one, I guess, do you agree that this, I don't know, inward focus, is this descriptive of many professions in the Western world? And then two, assuming it is descriptive, how do we understand how this came to be that so many of our professions have, I guess, developed this, this rent-seeking nature? Yeah, it's a very good observation. I think it holds. There are many professions that are deeply inward looking. Now, part of the reason is sometimes that's just part of their mandate. If you think about it, at the end of the day, what we truly expect from archaeologists is to correctly interpret finds and correctly preserve them. Should they be the people deeply rethinking what ancient humans must have been like? Well, possibly no, right? Possibly that is someone else's job. Maybe it should be someone's job and there's a sort of institutional gap, right? Someone should be making hypotheses of history and then archaeologists should be 
you know, giving thumbs up or thumbs down on whether evidence has yet been found for this view of history and this view of human nature. So sometimes it's a it's a question of what is in whose authority. The broader Smithian sense is such an example too, right? Adam Smith is doing sort of what he calls political economy. At times, he also dabbles in ethics, philosophy. He's a much wider thinker than we usually take him to be in the, you know, intro economics textbook. Over time, the mandate, the legitimate area of inquiry for economics actually kind of shrunk, right? What we think of as modern economics has already been shorn of so much of political theory, anthropological theory, ethical theory, that it's really like a very narrow construct. Now, maintaining the literal discipline of a discipline that's a narrow construct, you know, that's not wrong per se, but we have a big problem if all our disciplines are defined conceptually as super narrow. So these are just like two small, you know, one is a social barrier, who has socially perceived the right to think about something, who should be listened to, who is tolerated to think about something. And secondly, then what is the inner logic of a field as set up? But then finally, we get to the perhaps more interesting ones, the ones that are unique in modern Western society, the, the features that are unique. I think we live in a super bureaucratized society where sort of specialization has run amok. We gained fabulous economies of all sorts through a deep specialization of our economies. I worry that the consequence of this has been a deep specialization of intellectual production. And the problem with a bureaucratized system where people are competing on filling tiny, tiny niches is, you know, a sort of what Eric Weinstein calls the victory of sharp elbows over sharp minds. Not saying that, you know, the winners of these sort of office politics fights, when they're sort of fighting for this tiny, tiny intellectual turf, like a tiny plot of land, imagine 10 grad students, you know, boxing to the death and the winner becomes a professor. Well, maybe the, the winner is, you know, since this is intellectual boxing, social boxing, maybe the winner is the most original thinker, maybe. And whoever the winner is, they're probably pretty smart. But I would actually say that there is a selection against original thinking. And there is a selection against anyone who tries to defend too many plots of land simultaneously. So instead of people that survey the great landscape of nature and man and come to some observations, such as the theory of plate tectonics or whatever, if we're running with the geology metaphor, you have people who have very strong opinions on the exact concentration of uh, earthworms in uh, this little plot of land that they've been focused on for the last 40 years of their career. Yeah, and I mean, it, it seems as though this has become particularly apparent with COVID as the public health establishment has failed on almost every margin from first refusing to ban travel. You had, I think, believe the New York Commissioner of Health in February of last year tweeting, like, come on, let's celebrate Chinese New Year and prove those racists wrong. It's like, okay, there's a pandemic. <laughs> it wasn't really fully on the shores yet, but like, there's a pandemic. You had the FDA shutting down Dr. Helen Chu, who was the first person to identify a positive COVID case in the U.S. because she had got approval for testing. You had the CDC bungle their initial testing rollout. You had them being against masks, not adopting first doses first. Them bungling the, I think it was the Johnson & Johnson like pause and creating a lot of distrust. And I mean, to me, I think your analysis is correct. What I would also add is that there is a, I guess, degree of infantilization of the American public combined with the culture war where they are trying to predict responses where the American 
public is assumed to be a kind of bumbling mass of idiots that has to be managed rather than defaulting to just being very straightforward with what is happening, how severe it is going to be, and what the recommendations are for how to react and the lack of initial knowledge with the hope that in the near to intermediate future, there will be um, additional information as we are able to run more studies, do more tests, figure out a little bit more about this virus and how it spreads. And I guess my worry is just that those problems that became very apparent in the American public health sector are probably in basically almost every other, or not every other, but many of the other major professions in the U.S. in terms of just their ability to deal with an exogenous shock. The question of public health is an interesting one because the same technologies, the same social technologies of marketing and propaganda that were once used to get the American public to smoke, such as the introduction of the concept of torches for liberty as a way to get women to start smoking in the 1920s, these were the same methods that were deployed 60, 70 years later to try to get the public to stop smoking. So it's certainly not the case that a purely rational appeal to the public is the only way to influence the public's behavior. What is at stake and what is an issue is the belief that the public epistemic sphere, that is the public space where ideas can be aired, where uh, things can be thought out, where, you know, the metaphor of the marketplace of ideas is sometimes used, where we discover truth together, that is completely then replaced just with a layer of what behavioral changes can we induce in the population. And the problem with like abolishing sort of the public epistemic sphere in favor of essentially pure propaganda, right? Even if it's economic or public health propaganda, that's what the word is. That's the word that best describes what in fact we're seeing. Well, then you have the problem of you don't yourself know what's going on. I think most public health officials did not know what's going on. And in fact, they personally were in a worse epistemic state than random corners of Twitter in, say, March of 2020, May of 2020, heck, even March of 2021. In March of 2021, I believe, if you believe the lab leak hypothesis, you might have heard it on Twitter or on YouTube before whoever told you was censored. And if you were working in an establishment institutions, well, maybe there were backroom whispers, but you could plausibly actually believe that the lab leak hypothesis was completely debunked rather than a completely valid possible origin of the virus. It was ultimately a political decision that made it something that was acceptable to discuss right now. But what if it wasn't? So the public health officials, the people who would appoint themselves Plato's guardians, right? In this sort of uh, Plato sense, you know, the guardians of a uh, the perfect society who know the truth, but engage in the noble lie. That's a lie that is supposed to bring the rest of the populace of the city closer to truth, or at least closer to virtue. These guardians just, they don't know what's happening either. They relied on the same epistemic infrastructure that their work undermines. Yeah, I think that's right. And I mean, what's kind of disconcerting to me is one, I find it much more difficult to evaluate truth and fiction today where I trust random bloggers on the internet more than I do the CDC. The challenge is, right, like one, the bloggers have themselves a somewhat limited time and attention span. And so as this topic falls off their intellectual radar, it's likely to fall off mine as well. And then second is that, well, the internet is a relatively good 
I guess, epistemic sorting mechanism, at least within certain circles, it does take time and energy to stay abreast of the most recent updates of the, the things that are occurring. And if there is a exogenous shock in a new sphere, right, the question is, all right, let's say there's war with Taiwan, how well, I, I kind of assume similar corners of Twitter will update accordingly. But again, it, there is this kind of, I guess, uh, discovery process going on that does take time. And it's just a little bit yeah, I guess frustrating thinking, okay, if let's say that there is the possibility that we need to get like a Delta Boosta variant this fall, like I won't believe the CDC when they tell me. <laughs> it's like this is a major like health issue. And I literally can't trust like any of the public health institutions to actually do a reasonable job of evaluating the kind of relevant risks and benefits. I mean, part of it is I wish these public health institutions and not just public health institutions, let's broaden it to a whole set of bureaucracies we're much more willing to at least occasionally ingest the talent that can be found online. There's a precious few bloggers who have made a real name for themselves, not just under a pseudonym, but as a well-known, in some cases, almost household names. Like, you know, obviously there's Scott Alexander of Slate Star Codex and so on. These people have wide readerships. They've often shown themselves to be quite prescient in a whole number of things. I think institutions should go out of their way to try to work with such individuals in some capacity, right? Either through commissioning them for various public-facing reports or, heck, even hiring them. At a different part of, say, American or Western history, this would have been a no-brainer, right? Hiring someone on the basis of their output rather than on the basis of their credentials. But right now, this seems supremely difficult. So what does America look like in 20 years, right? We're at this point where our like technology is very good. We rolled out the mRNA vaccine very quickly, mm-hmm. but our many of our social institutions are kind of severely decayed. So is this continued decay likely? What would it take to reverse this? How should we think about the next 20 to 30 year evolution of the American state and our institutions? Yeah, I think it's sort of uh, interesting how you can continue to pursue some of these advantages. I wouldn't underestimate to what an extent the very decayed institutions are a barrier to technology. The fast vaccine rollout, there was overwhelming political mandate to produce a vaccine quickly. There really was. The political barriers for producing something like that were minimal. This is not true when you start thinking about many other technologies. There was an acute crisis and an acute need, and the technological capacity existed and we still have the capacity for innovation. There are all sorts of permissionless innovation routes that could be taken still, things that you know don't really destroy or disrupt a key political interest. But actually, it actually seems to me that, say, on something like energy, right, the barriers are worse the more dysfunctional the social institutions are. And these aren't technical barriers. Like innovation and, say, nuclear energy or something like this, that is politically bottlenecked. And that only gets worse, the less flexible those institutions are. So I'm not even that optimistic. Like I sort of feel like we then have, hypothetically, we have massive technological capacity. And there's only going to be tiny strands where this massive technological capacity bursts through the sort of dysfunctional institutional landscape. And the vast majority of it is going to be held back. Yeah. And that's, I guess, my worry. If you think about what kind of a long-term slow civilizational collapse would look like, it would be 
technologies that we have becoming us lacking the ability to maintain and service them, where you would see increasing like uh, electric shortages like we're seeing in California. You would see some of our cities fail to provide clean water to people like we're seeing in Flint. I mean, if you look at the average rail time from D.C. to New York, I believe it's slower than it was like 50 or 80 years ago. And so these existing technologies, we are unable to maintain and upkeep them as we once would. And we've managed to continue to create new technology in several areas. But the the kind of broader institutional failures seem to be pretty severe. And every while there are some, I guess, green shoots, just seeing the kind of dominant discourse and seeing what's happening, those green shoots are, I guess, just a little bit minimal to me, the kind of most uh, promising intellectual trend in the U.S. today is the GMU to former Vox pipeline, where you have people like uh, Matt Iglesias and Ezra Klein have become, for lack of a better way to put it, uh, GMU-pilled, where they are starting <laughs> to buy into this idea of progress, this idea of like sclerosis and institutional change. Ezra Klein, for example, has been like wrote uh, was Alex Tabarrok right about everything and previously wrote about a lot of the institutional bureaucracies that were a reaction to the Robert Moses, like, I don't know, sort of strong man city developer and how they've really prevented a lot of new buildings from going up. And so because they represent the center left that is the dominant discourse in this country, but the the reasonable center left, not the sort of socialist, somewhat hysteric center left. My hope is that that can hopefully form, I don't know, part of the consensus for a new governing vision to emerge. But like one, realistically, it takes 20 years for that to emerge. And then two, given all of the other trends that we are working within, and given the general dysfunction of a lot of American institutions, if you look at polling data from millennials, in terms Mm -hmm. of their interest in like socialism versus capitalism, it's just not particularly promising. So I don't know, that's a long ramble to say I'm not very, I want to be more optimistic about the future, but we'll see. Well, some points of optimism. I would say that I'm short-term pessimistic on the United States and long-term optimistic. We talked at the start of today's show about how many different lenses on history produce sometimes different answers. And I think on at least the geographic determinism angle, the U.S. has a lot going for it in terms of acceptance and facilitating exceptional individuals making their organizational contributions to society. So people coming in out of nowhere and building entire new branches of government or entire new companies or entire new cities. The U.S. actually has a remarkably good track record over the last 200 years. Arguably, even the last 50 years, if we grade America on a curve, name a single Western country that does better on that metric. I think none of them do. China, say, has an advantage in some ways, but as we saw recently with the humbling of Jack Ma, eccentric individuals can only go so far in the Chinese system, which means that while Xi might have interesting ideas about how to reform the Communist Party, they might even be correct ideas. If he's wrong, he's just deeply wrong, and he's not going to be corrected anytime soon. So I think these are reasons to be cautiously optimistic that the correction mechanisms will kick in. Now, The reasons to be pessimistic is, again, this, you know, big old forest. And maybe the right way to think about it is that we can hope this big old dry forest filled with these giant trees of these big dead institutions, that there is enough new growth and undergrowth that as these trees fall, each of them in turn will open new space, right, for new institutions to grow. 
And if we're very unlucky, then we might actually have to face something like a forest fire. But, you know, after that forest fire, I think it'll be still a remarkably fertile society or remarkably fertile culture. Yeah, I mean, my kind of hope, I, I think we're probably about halfway through the tech boom. So if you look at new major industries, for example, electricity, cars, they typically take 60 to 80 years to become widely adopted by society, depending on how you want to start. If you say, right, like 1990 for the beginning of like internet as a public industry, then we're 30 years in. So we've got another kind of 30 years. Maybe the adoption is a little bit quicker these days. But right, Silicon Valley is kind of the only, I don't know, still healthy part of the innovation landscape. And this can, to my mind, be approximately modeled on the fact that they were the only part of the country that responded really quickly and effectively to the coronavirus. Almost all of their offices shut down before government or before other institutions. They were warning about it much more early. Part of this has to do with them paying a lot of attention to China because uh, the, the tech industry in China is relatively strong. But my mental model is that because there is a startup ethos and because uh, startup founders actually do face a almost infinite variety of potential decisions, they are forced to be able to integrate new information very quickly and, and make decisions. Well, if you look at, for example, New York banking culture, the CEO of JP Morgan, right, probably went up from an analyst at JP Morgan, eventually progressing the ranks and obviously a very smart guy, but always had decision-making that was substantially more constrained than the decision-making of a founder in SF. And those differences in decision-making options, those two different analytic frameworks and SF analytic framework was better able to adapt to COVID. Anyway, to square a long story, my kind of maybe naive optimism is with another 20 to 30 years of tech boom, tech memes about entrepreneurship will penetrate society much more deeply that hopefully will lead to some of these uh, institutional restructurings that are necessary to really create a, a much more, I don't know, healthy national environment again. I think that the memes, yes, but also the individuals, where my hope is that this is the only part, if we think about it, Silicon Valley is the only part of America forging more of a middle class. Software engineers in particular, are the only people right now who are sort of keeping a pace of this kind of red queen race of a downward mobility and hyper-credentialization. It's still possible to be a software engineer, earn good money, and basically not have a college degree and the terrible burden of college debt and so on. It's possible quite easily to retire in your 30s and so on and so on, as long as you're well-situated. In any other society, in any other time, when a new class enters this threshold when they're no longer just, you know, servants, but become a leisured class, there usually follows a period of big cultural innovation because the people who previously applied their talents, making these startups, making these companies or working in them, right? They sometimes need to find new outlets, new places to sort of deploy their energy. 1900 San Francisco, since we talked about San Francisco as a modern example, is a city that was profoundly beautiful partially because all of the entrepreneurs, you know, people like Stanford and so on, these people wanted the city to be beautiful. They invested in city government. They built buildings, you know, uh, donated matters. An intense culture of civic pride was formed out of almost nothing. I don't know exactly what the broad base of software engineers, who are the only people with a rising economic and social standard, what they're going to be into. 
But I think that the founders themselves at the very top of this stack, I think they're going to look around and they're going to look at cities like San Francisco and cities like New York and cities like Seattle. And yes, even cities like Austin, they're going to be like, well, this is ridiculous. I spent the past 20 years laboring here. And so many of the fruits of my efforts are are basically being completely wasted. And they're not improving in anything beneficial to the lives of people. So let's fix the broken cities, they might say. Or they might say, let's fix the national conversation, right? Or they might say, let's fix government. I already made my money. Let's try to fix government now. And I'm very hopeful as to the fruit of that effort, you know, two or three decades afterwards. Yeah, one of the, I think, ways that I sometimes frame it is every new administration, New York sends two to three bankers to be cabinet level positions. And Silicon Valley is at least as important to the uh, American economy as New York banking. So who are the technologists who end up in administrations? And it basically never happens. And there will be a good indication of change in power once that does start happening. You have a saying that I've uh, sort of borrowed a little bit. Uh, San Francisco likes to think they're above politics, but instead they're below it. And so do you see that changing? And what will, I guess, help kind of accelerate that change and formulate a coherent plan to actually engage the, the political process? I think part of it is to understand that the correct way to deal with the critique of, you know, techie scum and all of that, you know, this this irrational kind of like significant hatred is to realize that you are never going to be able to pretend that you're not economically privileged. What you can do is, yes, say, I'm not just economically privileged, I'm economically productive. And not only am I economically productive, I'm productive in all of these other ways. They will realize that if they full-on engage with politics, with culture, with speech, with all of this, they won't be more hated. No, the hate will subside. They might even be loved. So I think this requires some basically bravery, and that will be a big culture shock to people that are honestly used to very individual work. In a way, we're often very sheltered. If you've been a software engineer for the last 10 or 15 years, you might have no idea how bad things are for the typical American, even the typical white collar American, right? And uh, this culture shock of re-entering the world out of almost cryostasis, I think that might be enough to give them that jolt of bravery. The reason this more cultural explanation matters, this more cultural framing, is that I think people mostly imitate their peers. So as soon as, you know, if in a certain social circle, there's one wedding, you can almost time the time to the next wedding. And after that, it feels like an avalanche. Suddenly, everyone's inviting everyone to weddings. It crawls through the social graph, this one example. And I think something very similar is going to happen with political activity and various creative forms of philanthropy and civic engagement. Yeah, I mean, you can already see that in terms of philanthropy, where the TL Fellowship, for example, now everybody realizes how great of an idea it was. And you see a bunch of, I don't want to call them knockoffs, but like similar types of engagement Eric Schmidt announced Rise, where he's trying to find the next generation of superstars. It's a little bit more politically aimed than TL Fellowships, but it's aiming to identify like 15 to 20 year olds and plug them into a network, empower them. I'm a Schmidt International Fellow, and one of the questions was basically one of the TL questions like, what big opinion do you have that like nobody else agrees with? And I met up with some of the other fellows, and none of them really realizes it. that question was from Peter. They're always like, oh, it's a very interesting question. It's very different from the typical like fellowship question. <laughs> so you're starting to get this broader engagement. So let's, I guess, shift gears a little bit. 
there was a recent uh, interview Mark Andreessen did with the what six foot three Balkan war criminal, which always sounds funny to say out loud, but I literally don't know how to identify him. And he makes the point that he believes in two generations, the entire world is going to be weird, weird in the Joe Heinrich sense, Western, educated, industrialized, rich and democratic, where Joe Heinrich argues that this kind of unique constellation of cultural attributes contributed substantially to Western economic development and influence. And because of the Internet, it is substantially lowering channels of transmission of cultural values. And therefore, in 50 years, in two generations, everybody is, for lack of a better way to put it, going to be, quote unquote, indoctrinated by these values, because America still largely has global, I don't know, media domination. And this was one of these ideas where I never particularly thought about it. But once I heard it, it struck me as like, I, I guess, a little bit obvious. So I was wondering how you reacted to that if you saw it or if you're hearing it now what your reaction is well i'm looking forward to more interviews by mark andreessen and i think he should be interviewed by all sorts of internet weirdos we were just speaking about the virtues the epistemic and possibly moral virtues of internet weirdos a few minutes ago i would say that there are certain common features and common responses that happen in humans once they achieve some amount of material prosperity Further, there are some changes that come about socially due to being integrated into a new type of economic organization. But that's where the disagreement starts. If you imagine the effect of corporate culture on Japanese society and the effect of corporate culture on German society and the effect of corporate culture on American society, these are very, very different corporate cultures. These are very, very different societies. And in fact, the very modes of economic organization partially reflect this. So these are in a way all weird countries in you know, the wealthy, educated, industrialized sense, but they're quite different. Lifelong loyalty to a company is still sometimes a thing you see in Japan. It's not a thing you really see in the United States. In Germany, the credentialing system and the credentialing, you know, moats and baileys and walls and fortifications between different economic activities are very different, where they have, you know, very excellent education for all sorts of technical roles. And they also have a different culture of where managers come from and how managers are educated compared to the U.S. Finally, also the barrier between technocratic government and technocratic economy is much less felt in Germany than in the United States, right? The interesting way there's a functional integration there where both sides are just moderately technocratic stewards of the German economy. They're, of course, also much more conservative than their American or Japanese counterparts. And that's perhaps a downside. So my disagreement there would be, yes, there are common things that industrialization brings about, but different societies do industrialization in different ways. And yes, there are common modes of modern education, but Again, different societies do education differently. I do think wealthy and democratic is perhaps the most interesting one. The political differences between parts of the world are still significant, but they're all going to be democratic in the sense that mass online political participation of the population seems kind of inevitable. So that type of democracy, yes. And I think wealth, well, unless things go catastrophically wrong, we're going to be much wealthier. But I think a lot of the values that we consider as to be inevitable products of Western wealth are actually products of much weirder things. They're products of things such as like the Protestant work ethic 
or a particular vision of human salvation and human nature that was only contingently tied to the Industrial Revolution. Japan surprised many Western observers in the 1930s and 40s because they industrialized without being Christian. Japan again surprised Western observers in the 1990s, 1970s, and 1960s, where they were no longer surprised that the Japanese didn't become Christian as they developed, etc., etc., but they were surprised that the Japanese retained all these unique ways of doing things, right? They expected a carbon copy of America, but instead something very different happened. And in a way, China today is surprising us. China is becoming rich, obviously. Secondly, I would claim China is becoming more democratic in the sense that almost all of the Chinese citizenry has gotten used to commenting online. Now, they've also gotten used to uh, getting fined and getting censored and all of that stuff but they are used to commenting about politics online. And in fact, there are many forums for them to do so within the narrow window that is allowed by the Chinese system. We have a window too. It just happens to be a little bit wider, or at least it was a little bit wider before 2021. But China has surprised us and continues to surprise us. So I think in a very real sense, China might become weird in 30 years, but their democracy is going to be very different than our democracy. It might not even call itself a democracy. And, you know, their way of organizing education and industry, that might continue to stay divergent and uniquely Chinese. Yeah. What do you think about aliens? I mean, you know, I don't know. I don't think about them at all, but maybe I should. Maybe they'll be offended if I don't. Well, I had lunch with Tyler Cowen a few weeks ago, and he said, right, with all the recent alien observations discourse, he put a 5% chance that they were, what is it, von Neumann probes which struck me as substantially high. I had not thought about it explicitly. I had kind of, even with all of the like evidence that they had been picked up on multiple sensors with multiple very credible witnesses, I had still kind of, I don't know, dismissed the possibility. But a 5% chance of von Neumann probes strikes me as substantial and that we should, I guess, rethink some of our kind of assumptions about, I guess, interplanetary travel, as well as just other, I don't know, great filter type things. Well, let me be first provocative, right? And say a little bit that I basically think these are probably not aliens. These are probably not, you know, conscious phenomena. I feel 5% is a substantially high probability, but it's still, it's a reasonable estimate. So as long as we're, you know, caveating this entire discussion and say, you know, on the 5% or the 10% or the 4% chance that these are not just, you know, these kind of relatively boring atmospheric phenomena, then what is this, right? And I think that the von Neumann argument is actually a better one than interstellar travel. We have a well-known limit in physics, the speed of light. It's considered a from known physics. We believe this is just the limit of how fast things can go. It's actually super inefficient to travel at this speed because it requires so much energy, like a huge, vast amount of energy, right, to even start approaching the speed of light. So there's a real hard known physics barrier there. On the other hand, I think we haven't really looked at the possibility of, well, how long lasting might technology be? If these are von Neumann probes, as Tyler proposes, then these are probes that are traveling at very slow sublight speeds. They reach a solar system, they build more of themselves, they send a few out, and it takes thousands, millions of years to reach other stars. So these are, you know, basically very ancient, very old processes. They probably visited the Earth before. In fact, maybe they've been around all along, sort of mildly dormant, maybe awoken by some particular human technology. 
But if we're positing they've been dormant and they've been a lot around here for a very long time, right, that it's not just a coincidence that we're starting to spot them now. It's just that we got the technology to spot them. But actually, you know, people probably have been seeing strange things in the sky for a long time, you know, maybe had stories of ghosts, demons, gods, what, what have you. I think if we start assuming that, why do we even need them to have traveled from a different solar system? So my my fun, very unlikely out there hypothesis is, well, you know, what if an ancient civilization arose on Earth hundreds of millions of years ago, possibly by species that's completely unrelated to humans? They went through their own little technological singularity or their own little collapse. And what they left behind was these sort of automated systems. And recently, we've sort of been activating them. A bunch of ancient drones flying around following our battleship our aircraft carriers, not because our aircraft carriers are that good or that interesting, but just because they happen to match the programming of what they were supposed to follow around. I think that hypothesis is one I've not heard of. And, you know, it doesn't require anything crazy. It just requires the idea that maybe other intelligent life from Earth from a very, very long time ago, and I will note Earth is the one place in the universe where we do know life exists, built technology versus ancient aliens from a very different solar system, you know, sent probes here. And these probes have been waiting for a few thousand or millions of years. Yeah, there was a really interesting article in The Atlantic a few years ago. It was by a, I don't know if this is the right term, but like an exoplanet researcher, whereas, okay, you find exoplanets. How do you identify if there is industrial life? You look for certain like percentages of different types of gases in the atmosphere. You look for kind of you can't even look for changes over long periods of time because our satellites only have data for a few decades. And the data probably 20, 30 years ago is just not very good. And they asked the question of, all right, like let's say there was an industrial civilization that did exist on Earth 100 million years ago. How would you actually identify that it did exist, right? All the cities are going to be ground into dust a long time ago. Even the ice caps, right? They'll have melted and remelted and are refrozen hundreds of times over. And so you basically look in rock formations, similar to how we find dinosaurs, and potentially you could find evidence of uh, kind of cities and settlements, or you could find evidence of very rapid changes in climate or in fauna that would likely have been caused by the rapid expansion of an industrial civilization. And in fact, our history does record several mass extinction events, right? So often you have people propose that, you know, humans... This is the Anthropocene, and we're causing a mass extinction comparable to the ones caused by supervolcanoes and asteroids. So if you took the hypothesis that maybe there were ancient industrial civilizations on Earth long predating humanity, well, maybe some of those mass extinctions were caused by this intelligent life. Cool. So I've got a few more questions, I guess, just about cities. So if you're thinking about one, I guess, where to locate a new urban center, with, uh, I guess, coming, one, we can think about changes in technology in terms of remote work, potentially supersonic travel. Two, in terms of changing trade patterns, what, I guess, analytic framework would you look at to identify where to build new cities and how to think about how they would engage in kind of the broader regional and cultural uh, economies? I would try to find the part of the world that has the most coastline that remains high in population density and underdeveloped in a significant sense. So what is the ocean or the sea where trade is going to increase in the future? If we look at the Pacific Ocean, it feels to me, you know, sure, there's more trade to be had even between China and the United States or China and the United States and Japan if we take that system. But it's kind of maxed out. 
most of the growth in international shipping in the next 50 or 60 years is probably going to be over the Indian Ocean. Already, there's a significant amount of shipping between obviously Europe and China. But consider India, consider East Africa, consider some parts of the Middle East and Southeast Asia. These are all areas, possibly East Africa is the most behind with maybe India being a little behind too. These are areas with these semi-developing economies. Most of these areas are still increasing in population. How much shipping is there going to go through the Indian Ocean? Well, now having said that, what are relevant parts of it? The old boring answers persist. I think Singapore is going to continue to do very well due to its position near the Straits of Malacca. But honestly, a city on the southern tip of India or near Sri Lanka or a city in the southern corner of the Arabian Peninsula or the Horn of Africa would have many of the same advantages. Also, the Egyptians have tried to build a new capital many, many times over. But if we model an increase in Indian Ocean trade and assume the continued relevance of Suez, then their city of the, they, I think they're calling it the new administrative city or maybe new Cairo or something like this. That city might actually be quite viable. If you imagine it just sitting there right next to the Suez Canal, its main problem is that it's out there in the desert, but you know, that doesn't stop American cities like Las Vegas. So if you assume some advances in desalination technology, or at least a willingness to re-divert the precious water from the Nile to different locations, I think there's all sorts of reasons to be optimistic about the prospects of such a city. Heck, even Neom was not that bad an idea, right? It's you know close to Israel, it's by the Red Sea, and so on and so on. Execution, of course, matters. But looking at pure geography, I think this is the most promising part of the world. Anything that is close to the Indian Ocean, and especially anything that has like is close to like a choke point for ocean shipping. When it comes to supersonic flight, I think that it will shorten distances immensely between all of the big coastal areas of the world. And we'll see how the regulatory development environment changes. I suspect once we have regular supersonic flight over the oceans, countries are going to change their minds about how much they worry about sonic booms. And eventually then also this just means the planet is once more smaller. If the economics of it work out as well as they seem to be working out, the result is going to be much greater social interconnection between people living in hub cities, which I think accelerates a winner-takes-all dynamic. I think this is one of the contradictions of transport technology. People assume that better transport technology means that it matters less where you are. I would say that better transport technology means that it matters even more where you are. If it's easier to go to Rome, everyone that matters at least occasionally goes to Rome. Cities like London and New York have long benefited from such effects. So my prediction would be mass supersonic travel will result in a winner-takes-all dynamic. And importantly, you'll want to be one of the winner cities. Being in the top 10 cities in the world is going to matter much more than being in the top 100. Yep, I agree with that. I think it will have the effect of accelerating the superstar city dynamic. Anyway, well, I guess maybe before we end, are there any questions that I should have asked you that I didn't? Well, I think a very good question would have been, how should a city be organized politically and otherwise to you know, maximize its uh, development and quality of life? And I know this is a topic you've thought of, you've thought of a lot. Uh, however, this seems like a good standard question to ask uh, experts on your show. 
Well, then answer it. I'm asking you now. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think it's a very hard one. I honestly think that we should have more appreciation for the political machine model. That is a system that basically looks kind of corrupt with a relatively strong man guy on top. Someone that's, you know, boisterous, that has, uh, you know, some laborers behind him, possibly, you know, even organized crime. However, is deeply invested in the success of the many businesses and construction projects in the city. Such a patronage network, you know, sort of radiating outwards can at times be very friendly to development, to building, right? Like people don't discuss the political organization of Kowloon Walled City. There certainly was no central structure that was in charge there, but there were certainly many organizing aspects of that city, including organized crime and so on. So I'm not saying this to say favorable things about organized crime per se. I'm just saying that a lot of our intuitions for what makes for clean, efficient, publicly pro-social oriented government results in these weird gridlocked oligarchies. So anti-oligarchy, pro-relatively central power, especially central power that has an economic benefit in the city growing. So don't make a powerful city council, make a powerful mayor. Don't make it purely incumbent on the personal virtue of the leader, but make it in their economic interest to build, right? If say you think uh, nimbyism is the biggest problem your city faces. There are other problems that aren't as easy to face with simple prescriptions. How do you deal with ethnic, religious, and other conflict? And different cities have different solutions from this. Cities from Beirut to Constantinople, or rather Istanbul, uh, Singapore, New York, they each have their own model, their own answer. But I think part of the answer is you in fact want to have some sort of organization of key communities, right? You want there to be someone you can talk to in Chinatown to understand how Chinatown does things. Okay, cool. That's uh, the two-minute version, woefully insufficient, but hopefully a good teaser. All right, great. Uh, Thanks for coming on. Yeah, thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to the Charter Cities podcast. For more information about this episode and our guest, to subscribe to the show or to connect with the Charter Cities Institute, please visit chartercitiesinstitute.org. Follow us on social media, cci.city on Twitter and Charter Cities Institute on Facebook. I'm your host, Mark Lutter, and thank you for listening to the Charter Cities podcast.